And so I'm going to read out of Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. And it says this. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Heavy. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in this passage, but there's just kind of three main things that I, I want to draw out. And uh, one is, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Uh, another is, who or what might Satan be in this passage? Uh, and then the third thing is, what might it mean to be ashamed of Jesus? And so we find uh, Jesus and his disciples essentially en route to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And, and this is uh, well before uh, what we call the Last Supper. It's well before the crucifixion at Golgotha. But already kind of in uh, Jesus' teaching to his disciples, he's teaching the disciples about the cross. Um, and what the author of Mark tells us is that he's speaking very plainly about this. There's no kind of double language or parables or anything going on and he's basically just telling the disciples straight up that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die and that he's going to rise again. And Peter doesn't like it. He doesn't like what he hears and so upon hearing uh, Jesus saying this stuff he basically rebukes his teacher and in response, Jesus' response kind of feels pretty harsh. He essentially identifies Peter with Satan. Now to be honest, I'm not really sure what to make of Satan. I'm just going to put it out there. I have no doubt that evil exists. I don't think we have to look very far to find what we would define as evil in this world. Uh, you know, people enacting horrific things on other people, on themselves, on creation. Um, I work around migrants and refugees and people seeking asylum and, and the fact that we have 65 million people displaced in this world kind of says to me that something is really broken. Um, but whether Satan is metaphor or this kind of pitchforked, horned red guy with a tail um, or something else altogether is kind of a bit of a mystery to me. And so I kind of ask, consider the question, well, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? P Peter is clearly flawed. He is one of the most flawed characters in Scripture. But uh, I kind of think, well, aren't we all? You know, I, I actually find comfort in Peter. I find comfort in how flawed Peter is. And, and so for most of us, you know, this, this journey that we call faith or discipleship or following Jesus is just this kind of series, uh, well it is for me anyway, is this kind of series of starts and stops and uh, hesitancies and kind of reviewing and, and reconsiderations and baby steps forward and kind of steps back. 
And so wonderful, flawed Peter kind of symbolizes the struggle to, to follow Jesus on his terms rather than kind of my own. And Peter is clearly uncomfortable with what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus is saying, the future that he prophesies for himself is clearly not the future that Peter imagined for the Messiah. He's just previously, only a few passages back, just described Jesus as the Messiah. And so what Jesus is saying kind of doesn't align with uh, the theological framework that Peter has kind of created. It doesn't align with who he understands God to be. In Peter's thinking, the Messiah is supposed to liberate them and he's supposed to do it in, in, a, in a, not necessarily a violent way, but certainly a very spectacular way uh, to uprise against their oppressors. Uh, the Messiah was supposed to enact justice on their enemies. The Messiah uh, certainly wasn't supposed to suffer and be rejected and die and then kind of come back to life. That doesn't really make a lot of sense to Peter. And so... Peter essentially just tells Peter, tells Jesus off. He's basically just trying to bring him back into line with Peter's understanding of the world. And I'm kind of reading this and I'm thinking, you know what, this feels familiar. How often, how often does the church, how often do we as Christians kind of seek to change the narrative? How often do we try and kind of twist things a little bit just to kind of suit our own comfort and suit our own doctrines and suit our own ideologies? How often do we seek to change the narrative to kind of our own very boxed, limited view of who God is, uh, our view of who is in and who is out, our view of kind of what God approves of and probably disapproves of as long as it aligns with my own morality, uh, our view of kind of how things are supposed to play out? You know, how often do we kind of seek to change and and uh, craft the narrative to really maintain systems and structures of oppression and exclusion. I want to talk about gun control for a moment, because, you know, who doesn't? Um, it's tragic. It's tragically topical. And uh, I also want to talk about it because that could be a reality for Australia. There, there are lobbyists and politicians in Australia that that are trying to lead us towards an American model in so many things, and gun control seems to be one of them. Uh, I kind of found out through my research that in some states of America, it's actually easier for a child to buy a rifle than it is to buy a packet of cigarettes. I don't know, I can kind of barely wrap my head around that. Uh, you know, I know that cigarettes are kind of dangerous, but they're not as immediately dangerous as a rifle. Um, and Absolutely. Yeah, they're very dangerous. And kind of given the narrative around gun control in that country um, and the disturbing percentage of so-called evangelical Christians who are kind of leading and supporting that narrative, I kind of just wonder whether they should change their motto. You know, their motto is, in God we trust. I think maybe they should just change it to, in guns we trust. But I say that a little bit sanctimoniously, but the reality is, is that in Australia we'd probably do well to kind of take a good look at ourselves too, you know, whether it's our treatment of uh, the first peoples of this country or our treatment of um, the LGBTI community or our treatment of uh, refugees and people seeking asylum, our record is hardly very clean. And I think all too often we kind of make God into our own image rather than really allowing our image to be transformed by God. 
And so in relation to that question, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Well, I think it's because he's trying to turn Jesus into something or someone that he's not. As I said, I don't really know who or what Satan is, but Jesus' strong words to Peter kind of makes one thing clear, that whether Satan is a sentient evil being or not, whether there's a pitchfork or not, Satan is kind of that which prevents us from seeing Jesus for who he is and kind of how he calls us to live our lives. Jesus seems to be very clear with Peter that this attempt to try and conform God to his narrative instead of being open to God on God's terms is essentially nothing less than the work of Satan. And then it kind of escalates from there because then almost to add insult to injury, Jesus kind of goes on to paint a picture of what following him, uh, what following this Messiah should look like. And it doesn't, it's not a very good sales pitch. Like it's not very enticing. He talks about laying down our lives and he talks about taking up the cross and he talks about sacrifice and giving up control and, and putting the needs of others ahead of our own. And it just kind of sounds a lot like hard work. And then it kind of escalates again because then Jesus talks about people being ashamed of him. Now in Christian circles and certainly in my kind of church life, that passage has been used to kind of equate ashamed with being ashamed to evangelize, ashamed uh, to lead people to this kind of conversion experience. But I actually don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. That's, that's not my read of it anymore. Because like Peter, you know, the question that I'm, that I'm asking in this passage is why do we try and turn Jesus into something he's not? Well, simply because we'd rather he was something or someone else because he doesn't align with our narrative and he doesn't align with the way that we want the world to work. We, we want Jesus to align with our own sense of morality and justice. We want Jesus to align with our worldview. But broadly speaking, when I kind of look, at around, look around and look at the church and, and what it is that we're doing, I would suggest that we actually want Jesus to be as Peter imagines the Messiah. We want him to be authoritarian. We, we want him to be a great warrior. We, we want him to be the Messiah who calls down an army of angels to uh, smite our enemy. We, we want him to be this kind of justice enacting God that, that aligns with our sense of how the world should work. And I think, again, broadly speaking, we're actually far more ashamed of Jesus, the peacemaker. We're, we're far more ashamed of, of Jesus, the friend of lepers and, and of tax collectors and of adulteresses and of the outcast and the broken. We're, we're ashamed of Jesus who says, blessed are the meek and the merciful and the poor in spirit. We're we're ashamed of Jesus who, who turns the other cheek. And we're ashamed of Jesus who tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We're, we're ashamed of Jesus who tells Peter to put away his sword and do, who doesn't fight back. This, this is not our understanding of the way that the world should work. We're, we're, we're ashamed of Jesus who forgives everyone, everyone. We're ashamed of Jesus who, who subverts empire and we're ashamed of Jesus who, who tells us that life will be difficult and messy and that even so that beauty can be kind of found amidst the ashes and, and the dirt and that he is kind of there with us and amidst it all, not, 
not offering platitudes, but journeying with us. I think we're ashamed of unlimited mercy and unlimited grace because surely some people, like some people really, the people least like us don't really deserve mercy and grace. And so I think that Jesus is saying, don't be ashamed of a God who is found in the hungry and who is found in the thirsty and, and in the poor and in the homeless and in the naked and in the widow and in the prisoner. Don't, don't be ashamed of a God who embodies love. And for me, that kind of positions that whole passage in, in a different light. Um, Mahatma Gandhi is credited with saying a lot of things and I couldn't actually find a reference for this quote, so I don't know if he said it or not. Um, but whether he said it or not, it's a challenging statement. And so he supposedly said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And, and that's really challenging to me because if I'm honest, I know that I'm often unlike my Christ. I, I'm, I'm ashamed when I fail to live up to Jesus' standard. I'm, I'm ashamed when I pass the homeless person in the street, when I ignore the cries of the helpless, when I... Uh, value my own comfort over the needs of others. But I'm also really glad. I'm really glad that Jesus is so far greater than the narrative that I have for him, than the box that I put him in. Uh, I'm so glad that he is a God of mercy, grace and forgiveness and a God who is love. A God who demonstrates love through service and through vulnerability and forgiveness and new life. And so as a community, our goal and our call is to love, to, to be known for our love. And so my prayer for this week is that we wouldn't be ashamed of that, that we wouldn't be ashamed of that, that we wouldn't be ashamed of following a God of unrelenting love and that we also wouldn't be ashamed of ourselves when we fail to live to that standard because we often do. But that in our failings and in our brokenness, that we would be open to love and that we would be open to the community around us and that ultimately we would pursue love more and more. That's my prayer. Amen. Amen.